one last test. Do you have signal there? Nothing. This is not good for an ADD person, is it? Technology is great when it works, eh? Okay, we're going to do our best here. But this is going to be very distracting for me. Maybe not for you. Okay, let's open to Acts. Um, we're going to finish off chapter one. Today it only took us three weeks to finish off one chapter. And there's only, you know, what is it, 26 chapters in Acts? So we'll be there real quick. Let me just remind you where we've been. Uh, if you're new or if you're visiting, uh, here's what has happened in the book of Acts thus far. As we kind of open the book, we're reminded that Luke wrote two different volumes. First is the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke is written so that we might, in, in the words of how Luke writes it for us here at the beginning of Acts, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the implication is what? That he's going to continue to teach and to do. And so Acts is that volume two of what is coming but specifically what Jesus is going to do. And we talked about how sometimes our Bibles have the, the, t- the heading that will say the Acts of the Apostles. And, and while that's technically true, is the Apostles are not the main character. The main character is the risen Lord Jesus working through the Holy Spirit. And there's good news in that because when we read all the crazy stuff that's going to happen in Acts, the same power is in you and I if we have submitted our lives to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work within us to accomplish his purposes. Now, you might not be called to do the things that Peter and Paul and James and a few others in Acts do, but you're called to something, and you're called to something that God's going to equip you to do, and it might be something like Peter and Paul and James. So don't don't think that what you're going to do in your life is not as valuable as what they do. Is All God's calling us to be is faithful to what he's going to do in and through us. And so let's continue to remember the Holy Spirit is the main character here in the book. And so we, in the first uh, 12 verses, Jesus is there and then ascends into heaven to give the Holy Spirit, ultimately to accomplish his purposes of creating the church. And we're going to read that in a couple of weeks here. Next week, we're going to look at Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and and what that word Pentecost really even means. Um, And then we're going to look at the church, what it's created for and to do. And and I hope that as we study that, as we read that, what it's going to do for you is it's going to fire you up to know that to be part of a church is to be part of one of the greatest possible entities that exist on the earth. It is through God's church that he's going to change the world. And so that means as we gather together, as we encourage each other, as we exhort one another, as we send each other out and as we work together, that's when we're going to see Jesus doing amazing and incredible things. We talked about how Jesus spent 40 days talking to his disciples and and continuing to teach them, namely about the kingdom of God. And we talked about how understanding that it's really important that we don't think that Jesus brought some kind of new teaching in those 40 days that he hadn't given that the rest of the New Testament authors neglected to mention, but rather that everything that he taught was the same that he taught, but now with a different perspective, and that perspective is looking at the cross. 
the post-resurrection and ascension, that everything that we read, both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, leading to this moment, are understood in a much more robust way. And we can see and understand the scriptures so much more clearly. It is a blessing to be on this side of the cross than back in the Old Testament times. It is a special thing for us. The rest of the theme of the New Testament is essentially going to be the the workings of the Holy Spirit uh, through the church. But as I was reminded preparing for a Bible study this last week is what Acts is going to continue to remind us as well is that the Holy Spirit has a very specific job in your life and in my life. And it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. And so if you were in Bible study this week, you should remember this, young adults. I won't ask you to stand up and say it. It's okay. Because there's two times that Paul writes in Thessalonians what the will of God is for us. And that's that we be sanctified, that we would become more like Jesus. And then in chapter 5, it talks about some ways in which that sanctification will occur. But the point is this, is the Holy Spirit, according to what it says in uh, John, is that the Holy Spirit's job is to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has taught and said. So we will look to Scripture, we will be reminded of what Scripture says, and we will be reminded of our purpose and our calling and understanding the character of God more, and it'll be changing our heart's desires. and, And one of the ways in which we see that is the fruits of the Spirit, which are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Did I get that right? Yes. Right? These are the fruits of the Spirit that God's going to give to us. And that's the type of person that we're going to become more like. We're going to be consumed less with ourselves and our own selfishness and the things we want. And we'll be more consumed with serving and helping and seeing others' needs and stepping into that. And so I guess a question that we could ask is, how do we know that the Holy Spirit's at work in us? Look at yourself last year. Ask your friends around you, have you noticed a difference in me in the last year or two? If they say no, I think, then that reminds us that, man, we need, we need to submit our lives to the Spirit. And if they do say, you know, you're more patient this year than last year, then you can go, do you know why that is? It's not because I'm trying harder. It's because the Holy Spirit's at work in my life, and we can tell them about Jesus. Jesus then ascends into heaven and the angels show up as the disciples are kind of looking up into the sky and, and they're just in awe of what's happened. And the, and the angels say, what are you doing? Like, get to work. <laughs> You've been given a mission. Jesus is going to return one day to judge the world. And until that day, which we eagerly await for, is we have a mission and we have purpose. And that's to go and make disciples of all nations. To baptize them and to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. That is our primary concern. And so that leads us here to verse 12 of chapter 1. So let's read this together. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. This is speaking of the disciples. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was 
in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired pardon me, a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akaladema, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of those men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these men you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So there's a couple of things we're going to look at in here, but we're actually going to take a rabbit trail for a little while, and it's not going to be about Judas, though I will talk about that briefly because that might have grossed you out a little bit. Here's what's important about the text. It's a very simple word, and it just simply says, verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem. They returned. Do you remember why they went to Jerusalem? Jesus had told them, right, in his teaching in those 40 days, he had said, when I am lifted up, when he goes to be uh, with the Father, that they were supposed to go to Jerusalem and wait for what? For Pentecost, for the Holy Spirit to come. He had promised them, this is what's going to happen. And so what's good here is that we see is that there's obedience. They took Jesus at his word. When he said, go to Jerusalem, they went, okay, we're going to go. Now, that sounds very obvious and simple. Except if you read the very first pages of the Bible, what do we read? God speaking with Adam and Eve and saying, here, everything is for you except this. Eat of this and you will live. Eat of this and you will die. And they didn't take God at his word. And they chose their own way. And, and how many times in our own hearts do we not take God at his word? And do we think, man, I, I think I know that God is at work here, but, but I'm going to step in because I think, I think my ways would be better. Now, maybe we don't say those words, but our actions often betray us where we say, I don't trust God. I trust me. I don't trust that he's in control. I need to be in control. And so here what we see is a good beginning is they returned to Jerusalem. When they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then the list of the disciples is given. And what do they do? Verse 14 says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus said, go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is going to come. And so they go to Jerusalem and they gather together and they pray pray. It's the primary thing in which they do. They pray. 
And we're going to talk about that prayer in just a moment. But there's something to this that is implied that we don't read explicitly in the text, but that I was kind of overcome with as I was studying this morning. This morning. I did not study this morning. This week for this, pardon me. Don't get any ideas now. Is that, and this kind of started on Wednesday morning when I was having Bible study with the men. We were talking about Colossians 1 and Jesus' all-sufficiency, his preeminence, just, just how big and how awesome Jesus is now. Everything was made by him and for him. And, and so we were talking about specifically verses uh, 21 to 23, which we'll put up on the screen here, and it says this. This is speaking to the followers of Jesus in the church in Colossae. It says this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And as we were talking about that, I, said a, I, I made a comment that got some pushback Um, which is good. And we talked about this reality of this word faith. The comment I made, and and I stand by, and I think it's true, and I think we need to remind us of this, is that there is nothing we can do to earn salvation. It's all been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. There's no good deeds that I can do that earn me a rightful place in heaven or in my own mind. There's, There's no amount of good works there's no aiding with it there's no well jesus did this but i also did this except one thing and it says it right here if indeed you continue in the faith the only thing that we bring to our salvation to our uh, sanctification is believing that jesus accomplished what he set out to do faith is the only thing we bring to that equation And so the pushback came from going, yeah, but that sounds kind of passive. My challenge was, I don't think it's passive at all. I think it's very active. Is when we think about our faith, is our faith is the action based on a belief. Right? I believe that a chair is going to hold me up, so I sit on it. There's an action. I believe that God has saved me for purpose, and so I go out and try to fulfill that purpose. Not in my own strength the strength of the Holy Spirit, but my faith moves me to action. And that's what we see here with the disciples, is they gather in a room to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And again, this is where how we view the sovereignty of God matters, is if we think of it as some passive thing where God's just going to do what he's going to do, and so it doesn't matter how I live. And so I can just do whatever, and he's just going to accomplish his will anyway. Then we totally misunderstand the sovereignty of God, and what he's calling us to do. Will God do what he's going to do? Yes. But he wants to and and is using his people to accomplish those purposes. And so they know the Holy Spirit's coming, so we can just go to Jerusalem, we can just kind of hang out and wait. No, that's not what they say. They go, we're going to go and we're going to pray, and we're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. We are going to act to that end, our faith is the only thing that we're going to bring. And their faith was believing that what Jesus said would ac- 
he would accomplish, he would do. And so, friends, the same is true for you and I now is what is God calling you to do? How is God sanctifying you in the ongoing journey of your life? Well, there's nothing that you can do to grab that and make that process go any faster. It's not your legalism that will make you more mature. The only thing that will make you more mature is believing that Jesus accomplished everything that he set out to do. And that he gave me the Holy Spirit. And I step out in belief of that. And I use what he has given me and what he has called me to for his good, for his purposes, not my own. The term that we use for this often is called justification by faith. This word justification is a legal term in the New Testament in the Greek. And it means that your penalty has been paid for. That that transaction has occurred as if you stand before a judge and you owe a million dollars and you can't pay that million dollars and you're declared guilty. And Jesus comes in between you and the judge and he says, here's the million dollars. The debt is paid. Legally, you have been justified. But you have been justified by what? By faith. That Jesus, that his sacrifice was sufficient. And so we believe that. And then we act in that belief. And, and again, it might sound like a rabbit trail that we're going down, but I think we see it here in the text when the disciples act in faith. And we're going to see that constantly through the book of Acts because there's no nice way to say this, is the things that, that the Holy Spirit does in and through the disciples is crazy. They can't do those things on their own. There's not even, it's not even possible. In fact, the whole reason many come to faith in Jesus is because they see the works done And go, there's no way you could possibly have done that. There's no way you could possibly do that apart from divine intervention. And you see sometimes that people will bow down to the disciples and try and worship them. And they'll say things like, brothers, we're we're men like you. We're not worthy of worship. But the one who has empowered us, the one who is at work within us, he is worthy of worship. So how are we going to act? Are we going to believe? Are we going to have a justification of faith? Believing and acting out what God has called us to do. The disciples here, they do. They go and they devote themselves to prayer. Now, I just want to mention this again. The, this, this morning, 9 o'clock at ten, to 10 o'clock, a few of us met upstairs uh, for a time of prayer. Prayer for what? Prayer because we need Jesus. Prayer because we need hope. Prayer because we need purpose. Prayer because we need help. Prayer because you can fill in the blank with a million other things afterwards. Prayer because we believe it matters. John Polhill wrote this, and I gave you the last half of this quote uh, in an email this week, but he says this, The time before Pentecost was a time for waiting, a time spent in prayer undoubtedly for the promised spirit and for the power to witness. There is no effective witness without the Spirit, and the way to spiritual empowerment is to wait in prayer. The older I get, the more sure of that I am. I used to just kind of react. I used to just go, okay, God, what are you going to do in and through me today, and let's go do it. And now I'm learning as I get older, and I'm only learning this in the last few years, and and hopefully I'm starting to do this in my life. 
But even in saying that, this week was an example of failure on my behalf. We had a few different people helping our family this week because we were trying to get Smonga into space camp in May. Because, you know, everyone should be an astronaut. Um, he's excited about it, and he wants to do it. And Shayla and I were like, hey, we're going to do our best to get you in. And There's no real way except you just log on at 9 o'clock a.m. on Thursday morning and hope that you get in a line fast enough to get in. And so we had like eight or ten people kind of helping, and everyone was on three different devices. And, and we were so pumped. And the morning came, and we're all like excited, and we're in this group text, and we're all talking about it. And, uh, and one person on one of their devices was able to get him in. Every one of us failed. But one came in. And so Shayla and I were super excited. And then I looked at her afterwards. We're up in my office. I looked at her afterwards, and I went, I did not even pray this morning for this. We did not gather as a family in the morning. Now, was God still at work? Yes. Had I prayed lots up to that moment? Yes. But I had forgotten who is in charge. And I thought, we better get online fast so that we can get him in. And then as a very humble and gentle wife rebukes, she said, you didn't? Oh, I did. (laughs) And I went... Okay, Lord, noted. (laughs) Prayer matters. And I don't just mean that by it changes the circumstance. What it does is it changes our hearts. And the more that I pray to God and and ask for the things that he has promised to give me, it's not because I don't believe he's going to. It's because I'm waiting in eager expectation for what he is going to do. And I hope that any, we had a a few people up there with us this morning, and I hope any of them that you ask would say that that was a worthwhile and meaningful hour of their life. And so I would encourage you to mark that on your calendar, the third Sunday of every month. Let's have so many people that we can't drag any more chairs in and we have to meet down here. Where we go, God, what are you doing in and through our community? How can we seek you and what you are calling us to do? If we want to be used by the Spirit, we need to pray. So the disciples do that. And then verse 15, we see that not only did they pray, but then there was an act that they had to do. As Peter stands up and he kind of becomes the spokesperson for the apostles through the rest of the letter. And Peter stands up and, and he says, well, let's read it. Verse 15. Peter stood up up among them. I'll deal with that 120 in just a second. But in verse 16, it says what? The scriptures had to be fulfilled. You notice they pray, and then where does his heart and his mind go? To the scriptures of God. Now, real quick, this 120 people, why does Luke mention that in brackets? Well, scholars remind us that in rabbinic tradition, 120 people was the minimum requirement for constituting a local Sanhedrin. So essentially, this is a church service. The other thing that's mentioned there is, and this is important, is that it's more than just 12 people. We often think of just as the 12 apostles, but there's 120 people here gathered together, many of whom followed Jesus for his whole ministry. But Peter points them back to Scripture, and he quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and he says, the Holy Spirit spoke through David. Isn't that an amazing thing? The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So who wrote the scriptures? 
the Holy Spirit. Now, he used people to accomplish that purpose, just like he uses us now. But Peter is reminding us here that these are the Holy Spirit's words. They are not our words. And as they were praying and as Peter recognizes this, he sees these two psalms and he sees how they're concerning Judas. Now, if you don't know, Judas was one of the 12 followers of Jesus, but he was very greedy. He was just after money and fame and power. And there's a few times in the New Testament we kind of see that briefly. And then we see that eventually Judas is going to betray Jesus. And for a sum of money, he gives up Jesus. And as soon as Jesus is arrested, he realizes what he has done and that there's no going back from that. So Luke gives us some information that the the rest of the Gospels don't share. In the Gospels, it said he was simply hanged. According to church tradition, there's kind of two different ways to, to look at this, but basically is he hung himself and either the branch snapped or he hung there so long, this is really gross, that the body bloated up, you know, whatever. Anyway, the point being is that Luke points out here that there was a very graphic death for someone who abandoned Jesus, who denied him. And they could be looking at this, and they could be angry at what Judas did, but what Peter says is, is, no, this is what God intended through the scriptures. And he knew this was going to happen, and so we need to replace him of the 12, and we need to put a new person in there. And that's a rabbit trail that you could go down for a long, long time. And so I don't want to speculate too much except to say this, is there's imagery found in Matthew that talk about how the 12 apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel in the final judgment. And so there's a belief in, in Jewish tradition that the 12, that this number mattered, and it mattered for a season and a time only. And we're going to talk lots about that as we move forward. Because after James dies in the book of Acts, and actually everyone else does except John through martyrdom, is none of them are replaced. This is the only time we see it. The apostolic tradition does not continue into the future, and we'll explain that when we get there in those weeks ahead. But in this moment, Peter saw these verses applying specifically to Judas, and so they act out, and they say, we're, we're, we're going to replace him. And so two men are given, and we see that. Uh, Barsabbas, people often think, is actually Barnabas. Uh, again, another little rabbit trail to go down that is kind of irrelevant but interesting. And then Matthias. But the thing that to notice in this is there's qualifications for an apostle. What are the qualifications? Yeah, not just a little while, right? It's not like it, it needs to be somebody who knows the things that we know. That's probably what we would say. We're going to replace someone. It better be someone that has skills in this certain area. What the text says is it's someone who needs to have witnessed Jesus' ministry all the way from the baptism of John until his ascension with a special focus that they must have been present and seen the resurrection of Jesus. You would think, and kind of I often had thought in the past, that there would be nobody that fits this. Because after all, isn't it only the 12 disciples that follow Jesus? Well, if you look at John chapter 6, we don't have time to turn there. But in John chapter 6, the crowds are following Jesus. And he teaches something that's very difficult for some to accept. And, and, and some, it actually is written where some say, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? 
then the narrator writes for us that at that time, many people stopped following Jesus. But as you continue reading, what you see happening is the crowds go from many to smaller to smaller to smaller. But it doesn't explicitly state it only goes down to 12. I think that's an assumption that we make. And and we see that here because there's at least two men that were with Jesus for the three and a half years of his ministry. That were present at the Great Commission, that were present at the ascension of Jesus, that were present and saw the resurrected Christ. And so they bring forward what we might think is a very strange way of determining which one of them is there. It's kind of like drawing straws. You ever done that with your family for chores? Whoever gets the short straw? Anyway, that's a different story. And so we can kind of look at this and go, this seems like a very strange way to do this. But scholars kind of point something out really interesting here. This is really the last time that we're going to see decisions being made in this way. But this is an Old Testament custom. So basically what happened, I mean, it sort of is like drawing straws, is they assigned each person kind of a little stone, and they would shake it, and the one that rolled out, that would be the person that they believed that God had chosen. And you can kind of look at that and go, man, this is chance. Like, this is crazy. It's like, it's a 50-50 chance that this guy's going to come out. Except for the fact that when you read through the Old Testament, you see that the that not just the Jewish people, but people did this so often. And the greatest example I can think of is Jonah. Jonah tells the people while he's on the boat, it's my fault that the storm is here and, and that you're in danger. Just cast me over and it'll all be fine. And what do they say? Do you remember? They're not willing to do it. Even though he's admitted he's the problem, they're not willing to do it. And so what do they do? They cast lots. And who does the lot fall among? Jonah. And then they throw him out. Somehow that was the moment where they realized, oh, he was telling the truth. And so the point that I'm simply making is that that's an Old Testament way of seeing things and doing things, but you do not see it after Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit is going to empower us with a new kind of wisdom for us to determine how to move forward. We're going to see example of that when we get to Acts chapter 15 and a significant issue rises up within the Jewish uh, Christians and the Gentile Christians. They don't cast lots anymore. They do it in a very different way. And so I'm not saying that we should cast lots, so don't go home and think, oh, this is how we're going to do chores for our kids. Maybe you can do that. That's fine. But don't make important decisions. Should we move? I'll tell you this answer will always be no. I just tell the young adults that all the time. You're not allowed to leave. Once you're here, you're here forever. But then they still do leave, so I guess it doesn't work. The point here with this lot system is this, and this is what scholars point out to us, is that they were taking it out of their hands so that they had no bias, so that it was not their choice, but they believed fully in the sovereignty of God and that God would choose that in the moment. So Matthias is placed as one of the disciples. Matthias is only mentioned one other time. The only other time he's mentioned is his, a martyrdom. He's killed for his faith. In fact, a few of the disciples are not mentioned very much. We'll, we'll talk about Peter, James. We'll talk about Paul. And we'll talk about why Paul can be an apostle who wasn't elected here. But that's a different issue at another time. We'll get there. But the point here is that they, uh, go back to the very beginning, is that the disciples 
went in obedience, acted in faith, prayed eagerly awaiting, but then went, we have some things that we have to do that God has called us to do. Why? Because we see them written to us in Scripture, and so we're going to move forward in them. So how does a text like this apply to us? It can be very easy to just read this as historical narrative, just information about how a disciple was, or how an apostle was replaced. Or we can read it with eyes to see and ears to hear that what God is calling us to do is he's calling us to be obedient, he's calling us to prayer, and he's calling us to act in faith, no different than they did. And so I go back to the Great Commission. This is what we've been called for. And we're going to see this as the church is gathers together, as the church is created. The whole point of the church is to send out that others might know who Jesus is. Now they come back every, this is why we meet on Sunday, because the belief was that Jesus rose again on Sunday. And so in that tradition, they would come together. They came together daily. We're going to talk about that. But then they came together weekly for corporate worship and to encourage one another to not lose sight of the mission. And so here's my challenge for you. Is have we lost sight of our mission? Do we gather together on Sunday because we know we should go to church? We say it's important. Or do we gather together with two things in mind? First is that Jesus is worthy of our worship and our praise. And if we don't regularly come together to do that, we're going to forget. But two is so that we are equipped and we learn scriptures, we understand them so that we can go out and we can make a difference in the community that we live in, to the people that we get to interact with. The disciples, the apostles, they're about to change the known world because they acted in faith. I'm convinced God can do the same thing through you and I today. Now, it might look differently. Our world is a pretty small place now compared to then. I've said this before. The nations literally come to us. So all we need to do is step out in faith and say, God, help me to not focus on my job or my career or my finances more than I do you. Help me to remember that ultimately why I'm here is that others would know who Jesus Christ is. Help that to be the most important part of our life. That doesn't mean we can't have jobs or careers or hobbies or other things that we like. Certainly we can, but do any of those things compete with our attention for Jesus? Then we need to reevaluate. Some things maybe we need to throw out completely. Some things maybe we need to reevaluate and put as a lower priority in our life. And I think that's what prayer is going to accomplish. That as we gather together, as we pray together, is we're going to see God more. Our affections are going to be stirred more towards Jesus and less to the things of this world. And God's going to continue to sanctify us through the Holy Spirit in that way. So that's the practical application for us this morning from a text like this. Let's gather. Let's pray. Let's act in faith. And let's not forget the Great Commission. Let's pray. God, as we have read these verses, as we consider them, there's sometimes little details here and there that we can get hung up on and lose sight of the main overarching theme of it. And so this morning, I hope and I pray that our 
understanding is that you have called us to mission and to purpose. That you have surrounded us with people, whether people that we live with, people that we work with, people that we rub shoulders with on the street, whoever it might be. That you have called us to be your witnesses to those people that they would know who Jesus is. So may we love people the way that you love us. May we look for opportunities to share with them where our hope comes from. May that become central in all that we do. And may we view where we live or where we work or any of those other details. May we view those under the context of we're a disciple of Christ who are here to make disciples. And this is the mission field that you have given us. God, as we look forward to Pentecost being talked about in the next text, as we seek to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God, I pray for wisdom, for discernment, and for a renewed excitement that we would know that we are loved by the King of the creation and that he made a way for us, namely through Jesus Christ, that we could be with you for all of eternity, but that we could be of purpose and value here on this earth, that you would give us freedom from the power of sin and death, that we might live for you. God, keep these truths at the forefront of our minds this week. Thank you for all that you're doing. We love you. Go with us now.